Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod from constant fighting over bridges to BC ferry woes to Translink looking to Ottawa to cover operating costs. Why is there such an infrastructure deficit in Metro Vancouver? Former Premier Christy Clark joins us. Plus, bikes versus cars. Will Vancouver Council restore two-way access to cars on Beach Avenue? And should the provincial government be in the window insurance business? And finally, first it was Stanley Park, now the Art Gallery. We continue our staycation series as producer Ryan visits yet another Vancouver landmark for the first time. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk bike lanes for a moment. Now, travel along Beach Avenue in downtown Vancouver, and you'll notice a concrete curb to protect a two-way bike pathway. That's because there was a new configuration uh, on Beach Avenue in 2021. Uh, the new lane at the time excited many cyclists, uh, cycling enthusiasts. Uh, critics at the time, though, said the changes made Beach Avenue worse to the extent that it caused more traffic, congestion, and idling. Now, the other day, ABC Council Sarah Kirby Young raised the issue of traffic congestion and potentially looking at a two-way access for cars on Beach Avenue. Take a listen. I, I think people extrapolated the council conversation around how do we alleviate the pressure coming out of the park, specifically um, at the park end there, uh, the very north end of uh, Beach and up to Morton Avenue, um, relative into a whole conversation around the entire uh, Beach Avenue as a whole. Um, and so I think there was a, sort of a broad conversation around what are the best solutions, but nobody's suggesting that we diminish the bike area. What we're asking is can they coexist? Now, keep in mind, up until 2020, this stretch of Beach Avenue was a four-lane perimeter arterial road. Uh, It was an alternative secondary route uh, into the West End and Stanley Park. But joining me now to discuss the issue of the Beach Avenue bike lane is Jeff Lee, president of the board at Hub Cycling. Jeff, uh, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Uh, your thoughts, uh, first and foremost, uh, uh, on the comments made by ABC Council Sarah Kirby Young on restoring two-way access for cars on Beach Avenue. The uh, idea has been discussed as part of the West End Waterfront Plan, which is a mid- to long-term plan that the city is currently working on, and, and it was floated there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it really comes down to um, how what you want to prioritize uh, along that stretch, whether removing the parking and impacting deliveries, whether it is uh, restricting vehicle travel to one way or whether it's restoring, you know, keeping the parking and two lanes of vehicle traffic and uh, pushing the bike lane over into where the sidewalk is, as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just a question of priorities. And how, how do you view the priorities of this council and based on what uh, uh, Sarah Kirby Young said? Well, this council has not been uh, particularly supportive of active transportation to date, and even less so with the park board. Um, the decisions on delaying the construction of the bike lanes that are uh, intended for Broadway as part of the Broadway plan, um, the decisions by the park board commissioners to take out the temporary interim bike lane, um, those, those things are having a real impact uh, that, that uh, will, will not help us with our, our mode shift targets. Uh, what do you say to the argument that some use, look, uh, you don't want to see cars backed up. People are still using vehicles, mostly still as the main mode of transportation, not bicycles. And there has to be a healthy medium here. Uh, and that that, act, that, act, that lane is needed. What would you say to that argument? Well, I don't think most people in Stanley Park are using vehicles over bicycles. I don't think the, the accounts that were done in the, uh, the park over the last few years support that. Um, there's uh, there's one lane all the way around the park, uh, two lanes in places. 
and we're about to further restrict uh, vehicle traffic in Stanley Park with a five-year construction project that the Metro Vancouver is doing to put a new uh, water pipeline in. So they're going to take Park Lane down to uh, to one lane and, and provide a choke throughout Stanley Park. So I'm not sure that uh, that trying to uh, speed exit from the park into the residential area of the West End is, is, is really going to have much of a positive impact. What would you want to see done on Beach Avenue yourself? I think uh, that bike lane and the, and the uh, I shouldn't call it a bike lane, it's a mobility lane. It, it's got scooters and, and all sorts of micro-mobility devices in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has peaked at 15,000 uh, trips per day, and, and it's averaging well over 3,000. Uh, that's one of the most successful bike lanes in Vancouver, and I, I don't think it's, uh, it, it's um, appropriate that they do anything to, to reduce that. I think if they want to... Um, make it easier for people to exit the park. They need to decide what they want to give up in terms of other vehicle access. Um, I, you know, there's been a bike lane along Beach Avenue there for many, many years, as many years as I can remember, mm-hmm. but it was very close to the sidewalk. And the danger is when you put 15,000 people on bikes on a bike lane that's abutting a sidewalk, what you're really doing is putting people walking at risk. And, and with this council focus on, on an improved focus on, on active transportation and improved focus on walking, I, I don't think that uh, uh, pushing the bikes back into the uh, park next, hard up against the sidewalk is uh, is, is uh, much of a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think you and your organization and other uh, activists um, for these lanes can work with this council? And what I mean by that is, you know, we're, we're talking about Beach Avenue and the Stanley Park, and, and there's been much debate about the bicycle lane there but also the broader conversation uh, along the Broadway corridor. And uh, we've had that debate and conversation as well. Uh, do you feel that you can work with this council in regards to more lanes, uh, making lanes better in regards to safety? Or do you think this is going to be a constant fight over the next few years with this ABC supermajority? I think that uh, a couple of things are happening. Yes, I certainly think we can work with council. We've got, we've got lots of good conversations going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what has happened so far is that the ABC majorities have voted in a block. And we have had strong support expressed by individual ABC uh, elected officials, but the votes have all come down to a, a block vote. And that's just changed. We've now seen the, the park board split um, on the ABC majority. We've now seen council split on the ABC majority. And we're seeing people start to say, no, we're not going to do this en masse. We're going to vote our conscience. I think that's a good thing. And I look forward to um, more. You know, we know we have supporters on, within the ABC party. And I think that as they uh, are, are now free to, uh, uh, to vote, uh, it appears, I think we'll see more good decisions. Where do you think the city needs to go next? I mean, we've had a, 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 a debate, conversation, acceptance, and non-acceptance from some um, in regards to the broader conversation about uh, bicycle lanes, active transportation lanes, because it isn't just bikes, as you say, it's scooters and many other uh, forms of transportation. But there's also a perception among some that with too much is uh, is being given to cyclists, that you are pandering to still a very vocal minority, that most of us still get around in, in motorized vehicles with an internal combustion engine. Where do you think, um, broadly speaking, the city, this region needs to go in regards to bike lanes and active mobility lanes uh, moving forward? The city has clear targets for transportation, and, and it addresses all modes. It, it addresses public transit. It, there are mode targets for vehicles. There are mode targets for, for cycling and other types of rolling. There are mode targets for walking. And, and those targets have, have recently been um, made even more uh, um, 
optimistic. Or they've tightened them up, and, and instead of trying to reach them by 2040, they've now set uh, 2030. And, and that is driven by our Climate Emergency Action Plan. So, so what we know is that the city has a clear plan on, on mode shift, and the city has a clear plan on wanting two-thirds of all trips to be made by sustainable modes of transportation. And it's really not about bikes. It's, you know, take your pick. It's going to be about transit. It's going to be about walking. It's going to be about rolling. And, and the goal is to get to two-thirds of trips within the city of Vancouver made by sustainable modes. Um, we know from the, from the research and the city studies that uh, bike lanes are one of the most cost-effective ways of, of uh, getting this mode shift. And we know that to get the mode shift that the city wants to see over the next uh, five-year plan, that they need to build bike lanes at twice the historic rate. And that's, that's in the recent, uh, that's directly from the city engineering department and their recent uh, um, active mobility plan. Um, the transportation department says we actually need to build them twice as fast as we have over the last five-year period just to meet our targets. And so if people think that there's too much pandering to bike lanes, I say, well, then fine, focus on transit, focus on walking. But um, what isn't going away are, are the objectives to, to find better ways of moving people and not to continue to cater to single-occupant vehicles. Um, we don't have the real estate. We don't have the uh, space. We don't have the, um, the money to, to build volume lanes for everyone who wants to drive everywhere. Uh, what we need to do is provide alternatives so that those who choose to can not be um, taking up those lanes. If we look at uh, Beach Avenue and the 15,000 daily peak trips, and say, well, you know, we might not have built the Beach Avenue bikeway. Take those 15,000 people and put them in cars, because they're all headed to Stanley Park, and put the 15,000 cars into Stanley Park on, on, on a day and see how, how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's simply not viable. <laughs> so so, so we'll, it, it won't work. The math doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, but I want to reiterate this with you. You still believe the cycling community can still work with this council, that it's not going to be coming an increasingly more of a polarized conversation. You think there is still some middle ground for some healthy discussion and to find a healthy medium uh, to, to placate those in vehicles and, and those in, in, in uh, bicycles and, and many other modes of transportation. I, absolutely, I believe that. And I think that now that uh, um, we're seeing a less uh, monolithic uh, uh, ABC voting pattern that, uh, that that it'll be fine. Um, ABC has a majority, but they um, there are strong supporters of active transportation within the ABC party. There are other parties that are represented, and you know you need fifty one percent. You don't need all of the ABC party. Yeah, and and I think that I I I, I think we'll start to see uh, some good progress. I think those are the burdens of leadership that ABC is now going through. When you say they're not all agreeing, <laughs> we've seen it many times, and and that's actually healthy for democracy as well. When people, I, I, th- I think it's healthy. I don't think it was healthy when we had 100% of them voting one way and telling us outside the meetings, I don't support this at all, but I have to. And <laughs> now what we're seeing is we're, we're seeing split votes. And, and I think that's far healthier for our, for our democracy. Well, maybe year two or three, they'll actually start coming out to me and saying it publicly on talk shows, Sue. So let's see what happens. Possibly. <laughs> we can, one can only hope. <laughs> one can only hope. <laughs> hey, that, well, uh, history tells us that's generally how politics works. So, Jeff, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, have a good day. Let's talk infrastructure. Not a sexy word, but boy, is it important when it comes to economic growth for a region and for quality of life. Now, that's been proven over the past few weeks with so many debates about ferries and bridges and everything else. Now, last night on the way home, I was called by a friend who was stuck trying to get through the Massey Tunnel on the way home to South Surrey. Now, I detoured through Richmond, had dinner, 
uh, and then went through the tunnel uh, about an hour later. Now, I figured it beats being stuck in traffic. Uh, what happened? Well, there was an accident on the Alex Fraser Bridge, and like clockwork, the other crossings backed up, Portman, Massey Crossing, and many others. This comes just a couple of days after Delta Mayor and Metro Vancouver Board Chair George Harvey was on this sh- uh, show, and he said that we need another crossing for south of the Fraser commuter. Now, keep in mind, he's not talking about the Massey Tunnel or Bridge for 2030s. Yeah, he's saying another one, including a new Massey crossing. Take a listen to his comments. Well, as far as south of the Fraser is concerned, I've had many conversations with Minister Fleming. We need, as you know, I desperately need a second exit out of Ladder. With our growth and the projections and the province requiring us to build more housing, we need a second exit out. And uh, we also need to look at uh, another crossing because the capacity that will be absorbed with regards to the new uh, George Massey Tunnel replacement It'll be vastly consumed based upon the growth that's happening south of the Fraser. We need another crossing. That was uh, Delta Mayor uh, George Harvey. Now, yesterday, uh, Metro Vancouver TransLink Chair Brad West was on this show talking about money from Ottawa to potentially cover operating costs, not capital, keep in mind, not to uh, buy new buses or build SkyTrain. He's talking about uh, the feds uh, helping out with the operating budget, which means the day-to-day running of the system. Now, add to that the recent challenges at BC Ferries. One vessel on a major route goes down and the entire system is overwhelmed to the point where customers are waiting over six to seven hours or catching ferries at 11 p.m. or even 1 a.m. Maybe it's me, but I feel like we're uh, falling behind when it comes to building and maintaining vital infrastructure. How do we get these projects approved and what happens behind the scenes when you know elected officials are fighting uh, for these projects? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Christy Clark, the former Premier of British Columbia. Christy, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be back, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm not sure where to start here. More than anything, I mean, you've been, you've been here, you've been listening to the news as well. What goes through your mind when it comes to, you know, George Harvey there? We we hear about uh, the challenges that Ferries is facing. Like I said, Brad West was on here yesterday talking about Ottawa potentially covering the operating costs for TransLink, not capital costs, like building uh, SkyTrains and that sort of thing. Uh, what's causing all this in your mind? Well, part of it is them, the local officials. I mean, there's a long list, Jazz, and I mean, you know, this could be a a uh, (laughs) three-hour segment of the show, but uh, since we don't have three hours, I mean, there are a whole, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that get in the way, and one of them is community opposition, and some of that is opposition from mayors. So, you know, when Mayor West says we're going to get federal money, we should get federal money for operating, I mean... He's either making that up or he's completely delusional because that is never, <laughs> ever going to happen. Uh, the federal government just doesn't, doesn't fund operating for a provincial responsibility like transportation, particularly when it's, when it's local. Um, so, you know, he's the chair of the Transportation Authority. He should be figuring this out rather than kind of coming up with bad guys. Uh, to blame for it, mm-hmm. when really local officials, and you look at Richmond and Delta, for example, um, when we were talking about, when we when we approved the Massey Tunnel all those years ago to go ahead, um, and I think it would be close to finished and operating by now if, yeah, it, had, the if it hadn't been cancelled. You mean the bridge, but, yeah. I think it was yes, springtime. Massey Bridge, yeah. yeah. If that, you know, we had both Delta and Richmond complaining about it. They didn't want to be on the other end of it. So that is a huge problem with infrastructure development is local communities and they respond to constituents you know fair enough Mm -hmm. often do not support the infrastructure 
um, that's that's coming to their communities because they they want the infrastructure, but they don't want more people going through their communities. And I, you know, you, most of the time you can't really have it both ways. Mm-hmm. But jazz, there's so local communities. Um, there's the issue of First Nations, obviously, that needs to be dealt with appropriately and fairly. There are all the environmental um, regulations that are in place. There are political reasons. Lots of times provincial governments don't want to build bridges in places like Kelowna if it's an NDP government because they don't want to, they don't think they're going to get any, any votes out there. So long list of potential problems. The last one, though, is the most important, I think, mm-hmm. which is the regulatory environment out there in British Columbia and Canada is, so, is such a thicket of of rules and regulations. There's all kinds of doubling up between the two. And for some infrastructure, it's really hard to get it built because the timeline for actually getting it through all those processes and all the red tape is kind of like forever. Mm-hmm. Did you, at any point when you were uh, premier saying, look, we got to build something and someone say, wait a minute, those that's the NDP riding or those it's going from one point to the next point. It's an NDP riding. We don't need to be focusing on that. Have you? Did you have to make a decision like that? In fact, I did. Yeah, there was, and the, it was the Patella Bridge because it starts in an NDP riding and ends in an NDP riding. <laughs> People said we're going to spend like a billion dollars on redoing this bridge when you know it doesn't gonna, isn't going to benefit people at either end that and ridings we hold. And you know the answer to that question is super easy. Redoing the Patella Bridge has a huge impact on people going for miles and miles and miles on either end of it. So they'll find their, you know, I said to them, look, people are going to find their way to a BC Liberal riding at some point if they go over the bridge. (laughs) But more than that, it's a huge economic investment. And as you said off the top, I I just, you know, infrastructure is not really sexy, but it is, it is the, it's the bones of the economy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have good roads, good railways, good ports, bridges, and all those other things that you need, you can't move goods. If you can't move goods, um, we can't export. If we can't export, we don't have great jobs in the province anymore. How do we take the politics out of infrastructure? I mean, it, it's there, uh, and it, it could be. And I'm not just talking about public sector. I'm talking about even pipelines. Um, but in the in the case of government, how do we take the politics out of infrastructure? Infrastructure, good infrastructure is good infrastructure. It helps all of us. How do we get beyond all of that to start building again in this province in a meaningful way? Because you see the numbers in regards to immigration. You see the people moving here. We seem to be just stuck, and it it doesn't seem to be getting better. It is. It's getting worse, Jazz, I would say. And I, I think, you know, part of that, a big, big part of it is political will and leadership. And, I, you know, when governments just layer on regulation after regulation, so I'll give you a good example. We um, had an agreement with the federal government that we were going to have a harmonized review process. So the province would have a review process mm-hmm. and the federal government would take the outcome of that and accept it. You know, I, there were some there were some caveats in it, but generally we, it would be harmonized. Well, the new government, federal government, Mr. Trudeau's government came in and they got rid of that. So now everything has to go through two processes that are for much of the p- most part looking at exactly the same things. So. You know, there's a good example of that was just a political decision. That didn't have to happen. Mm -hmm. And working to get um, reviews, environmental reviews harmonized took a decade of negotiation just about with the federal government. We finally got there. And guess what? Kinder Morgan had to go through the new process. And it was so difficult 
and so expensive for the company that they abandoned ship and now taxpayers own the, own the, own the pipeline, which is vastly over budget and way, way, way over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just uh, l- l- let's just take a turn towards BC Ferries for a second? I know they, you know, it's it's going through a moment. Uh, even today, in the last fifteen minutes, they are already saying that they expect uh, huge challenges when it comes to sailings from July twenty eighth to thirty first. If you're going to Salt Spring Island, uh, customers may encounter delays. They're recommending arriving at the terminal early, and even uh, residents consider carpooling to reduce the number of vehicles. That's what you want to hear when you're heading out on vacation. Uh, how, uh, how would you fix? that mess quite frankly you know we there was a tradition for quite a long time from 2001 of keeping the bc ferries as a non-political organization and the people that we you know the, the the company was really set apart from government and government finances and it was you know it was government obviously supported it but those decisions were bc ferries decisions made by professionals that, that distance between government and BC Ferries has closed a lot. If you look at the BC Ferries board, it's a lot of really political people on it. I think Joy McPhail may chair it or, or, has, or mm-hmm. is on the board. I mean, you know, just pe- folks like that, good people, but they're, they're not non-political. And I think that political flavor in the company has been really bad for it. I would say, though, Jazz, to mm-hmm. be fair to BC Ferries, because I use them a lot, um, one of the things we know is that they have a real staffing shortage mm-hmm. at the captain level. So one of the things that they're dealing with, in addition to all the political fingers in the pot, is they don't have enough people that are at that very highly trained level that are required to captain a ship. And so they're constantly kind of playing catch up to try and figure out how to reroute things, which is, which is you know, to be, you know, to be fair, a problem for everybody across the economy where even developers are having trouble putting up houses because if they can get through the regulations, they may not have the guys to actually build the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you seeing the same problems in other parts of British Columbia too? Or is this a more uh, Metro Vancouver issue? Metro Vancouver is the, you know, the toughest place for it Mm -hmm. because there's so much, you know, building infrastructure in areas where people are already living and, you know, where neighborhoods will be drastically changed, and it may not be many of them, but it may be a few. Um, it will always be a few. That's really hard. You know, you look at how long it takes the community consultation for SkyTrain, for example. But Kelowna is a good example, though, of a place where they are finding a, the community is coming together, saying we need a second crossing. Our population is going to double. Housing prices are a million bucks or just about a million bucks in Kelowna now. The shortage of land not enough development in the west side as a result of the transportation problems, they still can't get that process up and finished. And in that case, it's a political problem, I think, right? The, mm-hmm. the government just doesn't see any political juice in doing it. But it's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, governments represent citizens of all stripes. And the right thing to do to build a strong economy is to build infrastructure. And if you want to lower housing prices, one way to do it have an impact on it is open up more land for development so there's more opportunity to build build more housing vancouver though and um you know in particular Mm -hmm. and burnaby and some other places like that it's really tough because those you know communities are so well established there's very little land and um you know lots of people just say well look i don't want to have trucks going through my backyard so no thank you Mm -hmm. i'm going to fight that highway yeah 
It is it is an issue. But one thing about wherever I've traveled in the world as a reporter, what separates us and, and, and many other countries uh, beyond you know a democracy is vital infrastructure. It is not sexy, as I said, but boy, it separates you from many jurisdictions uh, around the world. And if we fall behind, uh, it's not good for society, uh, period. And I hate seeing stuff like this. These problems occur, but you can't fall back on infrastructure. It is so incredibly vital. And uh, I really hope uh, whatever challenges we have, we can surmount them because it's a huge, huge challenge right now here in British Columbia. Um, Christy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure as always, Jazz. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Joining us now uh, is our contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. I know you're new, so I can't really hold this <laughs> against you. Like, you don't have a landmark yet because you probably haven't been around the lower mainland as much as you probably would like with COVID and everything. This right? is true. I've been a tourist. I've also, I've never been to Fright Nights, but I've been to, a, I've been to, I've been here and there yes. a little bit as I visited, like before I moved, I visited as a tourist. You did. So yeah, I've done touristy stuff. Is there a particular touristy spot you like? Um, honestly, Science World is a whole bunch of fun. I okay. like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I think that's my favorite you don't have to be spot, a, You don't have to be a kid to go to uh, Science World. It's a lot of fun. Jesus, I hope not. <laughs> no, no, it's <laughs> a lot of fun. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, an issue that has been quite prevalent uh, during COVID and after COVID, which has, of course, been the incredible vandalism that we've been seeing uh, in and around uh, the Lower Mainland with windows broken. And yesterday... On this program, we did have um, the Minister of Jobs on the program talking about a new initiative that the NDP government is launching. Exactly. It's exciting because uh, it's been really hard out here for small businesses. According to the Retail Council of Canada, shoplifting incidents have increased over 200% since the pandemic began, and it's across the board. Food, clothing, beauty, people are just stealing more now than they were before. But small businesses who have been victims of break-and-enters or other vandalism may be in for some relief. The provincial government announced yesterday that they will be providing new funding via the Securing Small Business Rebate Program. Minister of Jobs Brenda Bailey was on our show yesterday with some details. It's a $10.5 million program that will provide two streams of rebates. The first one is up to $2,000 to assist small businesses to recover from a vandalism strike. And the second stream is up to $1,000 to support preventative measures, things like gates, or often we'll see this used for cameras, I think. I chatted with a small business owner, Sean McGarva, who owns West of Woodward, a clothing boutique in Yaletown. His business was broken into not once, but twice in January of this year. Do businesses have insurance against this kind of thing? thing or when it happens is it mostly out of pocket uh, i guess it's a, co- a combination of both in terms of glass it, it, it can be a pricey repair like tall you know like six foot display windows so i so i have a policy in place for sure to uh, to go through insurance you know one risk with that is you have the policy until you use it too frequent and then the, oh, get the out insurance of here. company says you're no longer you're no longer uh, qualified but that, that's not me yet but that i was warned by my broker yeah and then the second part of your question was there is some out-of-pocket costs because uh our first evening we were hit it was a holiday so you can't really get a, a glass company to be boarding it up so it was like me and my father-in-law like you know home depot plywood of things of that nature just buying products to board it up so we don't just have an open window there's a little out of pocket cost that way of course this is interesting because this securing small business rebate is retroactive to january 1st 2023 so oh goodness good to hear it says that businesses are going to be able to apply for as much as two thousand dollars per business for the cost of repairs due to vandalism and up to 
$1,000 for vandalism prevention. And I'd like to ask, in your opinion, do you suppose that that is enough per business per year? Um, you know what? I don't want to speak on every neighborhood of Vancouver. Uh, I'll preface that. However, you know, I think I think that's fair. It's um, It's a lot more than no help. So I think it's significant enough, but I think the the more important part of the two parts of support is actually probably the prevention side, I would say. So it's good that they did tier it to two different components. Um, but I'll say it's fair. Yeah. I mean, there's people worse off than me, and and but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to speak for a retailer that could be in a neighborhood where it's even more frequent than myself. I'll say it's fair for Yaletown. We can expect more details on the rollout of this program in the fall, but it does seem like small businesses are going to likely appreciate the help. And you know what? They need it. Oh, uh, for right? sure. Right? That's the challenge. Uh, you know, when I hear something like this, it generally, uh, you know, the assumption is, should we be in the in the business of subsidizing insurance, really? Mm-hmm. Right? There is insurance for that. But if yeah. you go to insurance second time around, third time around, fourth time around, uh, it doesn't work for most small business people, right? There's always the deductible and everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other thing, I was, it was in the paper today in the Vancouver Sun that uh, even in, in uh, some of their own sort of well-known neighborhoods, mm-hmm. a lot of businesses have shut down for a variety yeah. of reasons, not just for vandalism. But once you lose that neighborhood, that small the, the small businesses, like downtown's not the same if you didn't have some unique little business. Oh, totally. Right? Actually, with the Broadway Subway project, like obviously infrastructure that people need. We need construction for transit down there because you know what it's like not that great but when you have such ongoing long construction projects it's ostensibly a great thing but i know two businesses that have had to shutter because of pandemic and then immediately this like large-scale construction that detracts uh foot traffic it's a huge huge thing and so uh, my guess is though the 10 million plus or whatever they were saying ten and a half million that's not gonna last that's not gonna last i just don't buy it though yeah i know but you know what it'll be there and uh and as i think the minister has said this is that that other sort of programs they start like that they, they they have a specific number and then generally as it runs out they can put more money into it they do that with ev rebates as totally well. yeah i remember when i was mla at one point they're literally down to like uh, i think it's a fund it was 50 million they're down to like uh, like literally like a few hundred thousand it was just dwindling by the hour like there, it was going to be done by 3 p.m Ooh. and the government quickly threw in 10 million more. good yeah. good so that that's a good thing i hope it uh, <laughs> i hope it works so thank you so much thank you Now, you may recall a couple of weeks ago uh, on this show, I was telling you about a conversation we had uh, behind the scenes here at CKNW when our producer, Ryan Lee Hall, happened to casually mention that he had never been to Stanley Park. Now, as you all know, we're located in downtown Vancouver. That's what, 1.7 kilometers away uh, from this building. Brian, of course, sorry, Ryan, of course, born and raised here in uh, Metro Vancouver, but never, ever went to Stanley Park. So he did take a tour. Now, uh, with uh, our conversation, we also found out that he had never been to the Vancouver Art Gallery, and uh, he joins us now, Ryan, and of course Stephen Chang, our producer as well. Ryan and Steve, Stephen, welcome. Hello, Jazz. Hello, hey, Jazz. hello. Now uh, we have to remind people we're on West Georgia. How far away is the Art Gallery, Ryan? Uh, it's right next door, actually. <laughs> next door, it's across yeah. the street. Yeah, it's yeah, it's literally across the street. <laughs> it's across the street. So you've never had any inclination to to pop over? No. Never. Never. Never in my life. Never. What am I going to do in an art gallery, Jazz? Well, uh, Stephen, you went along with Ryan, did you not? I did, yes. I had the honor of taking this man. (laughs) This man. This man. This grown man. And and was there any hesitation on your part before you decided to to take up the, uh, the assignment? You know what? I felt like a responsible adult for Ryan here. Uh, As someone who moved in Vancouver 
taking someone who's been born here, uh, you know, I just felt that <laughs> massive responsibility and feeling like a cultured immigrant that I am. I wanted to take Ryan to these places. So Stanley Park last week, not that great of a deal. But, you know, I wanted to take my chances with the art gallery. He's never been. It's right next door. And you know what? Here's how it turned out. Did he like it? Did he not? Let's find out. Okay, Ryan, it's your first time here at the art gallery. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm feeling really positive about this one. I have real high hopes for this one. I think it'll be a lot better than Stanley Park. Again, a park's a park, but an art gallery might not be an art gallery. You know what I mean? Do you think it's going to be better than the Surrey one that you're used to? Because you've never been to the Vancouver Art Gallery before. You know what? The last time I was at the Surrey one, I was probably like maybe 12 years old. So it's been a long time since I've been to an art gallery. So I'm really excited to uh, get this one going here. Okay, let's get in. We're on the second floor right now. This floor, we have an exhibition called Fashion Fictions. So it is an exhibition all about fashion, all about technology, materials. We explore three themes. We have aesthetic prophecies, we have material futures, and responsible visions. It all works from the last 10 to 15 years. So if you're into streetwear, if you're into tech, if you're into AI, all of that, we have a whole sneaker section that I think you'll Sneakers. find really interesting. Okay. There yeah. We go. There all right. we go. Yeah, I can yeah. tell this is getting some wheels turning. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> this is what you've been waiting for. Sneakers, yeah. yeah, yeah. We found the right place for you. We, we did. Yeah. Amazing. So our curator, Stephanie Rebeck, she's in-house. She did all of this. It's been super popular this summer. Yeah. I mean, everybody can relate to fashion, yeah. right? How do you feel about going to this exhibit before we fully immerse it? Checking out the sneakers right now, I already see things that even resemble like Jordans, and I see some Nike Air Maxes and whatnot, and no, I'm actually really excited for those. For New Balances as well, those are the wave these days. I have mine on here today, so. I can just see the glow and the smile yeah, sneakers, on your face. Yeah, sneakers, sneakers, sneakers yeah, is where it's at, yeah. I see a teardrop just running down there. Oh, yeah, right now. It's just really beautiful. My eye. Yeah, well, Stephanie, take us away. Sneakers. So, was not just to show couture or one-off art pieces. I wanted to um, include examples of sportswear and streetwear to show how a lot of the big ideas are filtering down to the everyday as well as filtering up because the influence is in both directions, right? So there's a large installation of sneakers. It's a moment where all three of the exhibition themes sort of coalesce. So obviously we can see there's aesthetic innovation. There's also some materials research. We have some Adidas sneakers over there that use 3D printing as well as uh, you know an interest in sustainability. So we have a couple of examples of the night grind where they're using um, pre and post consumer waste that get ground up to create the spotted soles that you can see there. So it was it's kind of a, a nice moment to talk about all three of the exhibition themes and then sneakers. I also am a big sneaker yeah, fan and have yeah. a big sneaker collection. So um, it was something that was of interest to me. And there's just such interesting forms that are being created in uh, sneaker culture right now. So if you actually just hover your hand over it, it will move through. Yeah, the fun little tech noise. Reeboks, okay. Again, classics. What? What are you doing? Man? I haven't seen you smile like this in six months. <laughs> I wasn't smiling like this at Stanley Park, I'll tell you that much. So. <laughs> the sneaker selection there is Already. not as strong. No, not at all. God, you're like a kid in the candy store right now. Yeah, I'm just kind of flipping through them. <laughs> So I believe you mentioned that almost all the sneakers in the collection that we have are commercially available. So if you really wanted it, yeah. you could actually go out and buy any single one of these. Okay, because these yeah. Air Maxes I'm looking at and I'm like, the yo, like I might have to, like the 720s. I love seeing you smile. So this is an installation that we commissioned for the exhibition. Um, by a designer, Alice Potts, who's based in London, and she's developed this process to crystallize, to make crystallizations out of human sweat. 
Uh, so what she did for this project is she worked with three local Vancouver brands um, that supplied the hats and she worked with eight subjects who wore the hats for six weeks uh, in all their activities, going to the gym, going to raves, going to work, whatever. And then she took the hats, treated them with her process and developed the crystallizations that you can see. What do you think about the hats? They're no, they're dope. Like, like honestly, like, who would have ever thought that like, you could like, crystallize a hat, right? Yeah, from your own so, sweat. Yeah, no, like, like, I yeah. never thought that ever. So what did you think? Wow, do you know, like, again, I've never really walked through a proper art gallery, at least not as an adult. So when you're actually older, I feel like you appreciate the art a little bit more in terms of not only like what goes into it, but like what the messaging is behind it as well. I feel like when you think of an art gallery, sometimes you feel like, oh, like it's just paintings, it's just this, but it's like, no, like there's a lot more that can be in it as well. Mm -hmm. um, pleasantly surprised, I would say, yeah. for my first time as an, you know, adult. What are your reactions to Ryan's first time <laughs> at the Vancouver Art Gallery? Well, I loved knowing that we brought a smile to your face. Mm -hmm. For me, that's mm -hmm. all I could ever ask for. Yeah. But you know, it's igniting wonder and curiosity in yeah. you. Just like what the kids feel when they come in through our doors. So that's a beautiful moment for me. It could happen at any age. You sounded a lot happier there, Ryan. I did. I did. I told you, this was a lot better than Stanley Park. As I said earlier, there are parks to park, and art galleries probably not just an art gallery. Uh, what would have happened if it was sort of a traditional museum, like, you know, portraits instead of sneakers? I mean, it's still cool. I think it's still different. I think the biggest difference, I think, for me was that mm -hmm. at an art gallery, you're, you have something to do. Like, you have something to see. You have something, like, that you can kind of interact with. Yeah. Whereas at Stanley Park, we were just kind of just sitting in this <laughs> horse carriage and just, yeah, looking at trees. It was and, all natural, yeah. but that's not your thing. But it was no. interactive here, as you're saying. It and was definitely interactive. Again, I've only ever been to one other art gallery in my life, the Surrey Art Gallery. And guess where that is, Jazz? <laughs> Same location as what? Bear Creek Park. Bear Creek no Park. No lie. So it's like a one-kilometer radius where you mostly have all your fun, it seems Yeah, like. King George and uh, 88th Avenue. Well, yeah. I appreciate you being a good sport and, and participating in the staycation. So thank you very much. And Stephen, great job, as always, following Ryan on and encouraging him as well. You know, I'm just really happy that I got to make him smile that day. Uh, thanks to Jasmine and Lucy from the Vancouver Art Gallery. They did a great job bringing us to an exhibit that um, Ryan actually enjoyed. We got really lucky. <laughs> there are sneakers, Jazz. We did not expect that. I, I was a little worried if they had like a Van Gogh uh, exhibit or something. It was traditional portraits. And <laughs> yeah, no. Instead, we took this man window shopping for sneakers. In the Vancouver Art Gallery. Yeah, I think I still would have been kind of into that. But again, as I did say as well, like Art Gallery, I think I might be back one day. Oh, good I think for I might you. Be back I mean, it's a, it's a long trip. It's almost, it's a one entire red light where you got to go across the street, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe you after work one day I might, you know, spend some a little bit more time here. You should. Time. They have those Fridays where you can go in free they as do. well. They have big lineups all the time. So thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank no you. No problem. That is, the, that's uh, Ryan Lee Hall and uh, Stephen Chang, our two producers. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.